back. John and I are at it again here with another solid interview for you today. We're going to get to that in just a second. Before we do, you know I got to check in with my guy. John, how you doing, dude? I am doing well, man. Happy to be here. I uh I like had um yeah, I had one of those 5-hour energies this morning, you know? Ooh. Now I'm yeah. having a diet coke. I don't I feel like I think I just might be immune to caffeine at this point, you know what I mean? Diet coke's yeah, like dude. nothing. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, I get what you mean. I drink it to go to bed, you know? It's like a nice sleep like melatonin. Yeah, that um, sounds like a real pro move. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Too much monster will do that to you. Um, all right. Well, I'm excited for our guest today. Um, I've I've wanted to get somebody on, like an expert on to talk attribution, attribution modeling, data modeling, um, because there's been, you know, uh, on Twitter, we all know there's been the attribution wars uh, and like, you know, between the tools and whether we should even think about it or not. So I'm excited to have our guest on today. Scott, I totally forgot how to say your last name. Scotty D. <laughs> from Wicked Reports. Uh, you say it, Scott. Scotty D. I used to get called that back in Little League. Scotty D. <laughs> and with, the, with just like the wicked, with the wicked, nice Boston accent, Scotty yeah, D. Yeah, you know, mine's actually a Maine Boston hybrid. Sometimes ah. get confused for Australian if you don't know what you're talking about, but yeah. uh, happy to be on. Scott DeGrossier, very yeah, French, maker of the King's Gooseberry Wine, which you don't actually find in your local winery shop right. so here i am selling data to you today yeah the uh <laughs> we literally uh actually asked you how to say your name before we got on like a minute before we were live uh we were like <laughs> how do you say your name again and i forgot so that's that's about yeah that's about how i'm going today but scott uh good to have you here uh really excited to talk to you um I, and and this is this is one that i've been excited for i don't know this may be like a really kind of nerdy or geeky sort of modern commerce um, specifically for marketers, media buyers, people who like are, are in the weeds of doing the marketing, I think. Um, but I think it, it, it's helpful for high level, you know, CMOs, uh, head of marketing, those kinds of people as well. Um, before we kind of get into it, I think I would, I would love to know how you got into it. Like, how did you like why data, why wicked reports? Like what it was, this just like a opportunity, like happenstance of opportunity, um, or was this like, you know, or do you have a background as a media buyer, as a marketer or something like that? Sure. Uh, happy to talk about that. So I've always been into data since I've always been a mega early adopter of things. Like I was into meditation, like early nights, using spreadsheets to predict fantasy baseball auction values when I was 15, which would have been 87. <laughs> I was always into things, kind of unique things early, like Dave, uh, Dave Asprey, the big uh, whatever his you know his diet stuff is. He was mm -hmm. my health coach for a hundred bucks on Skype. Nice, okay, like <laughs> so early days. early doctor. Yeah. So with, in this case with data, I was into I was in, how it first started was I was trying to predict how the horses, what horse would win a horse race in Maine when I was like twelve years old. And okay. they had the program of the horses and all the stats. So I started tried messing around with that. And it was just the natural ability I had, which was data. And so that's how I kind of get into databases was way back in the in early, mid-90s. I was doing databases, stock trading databases, running data for Motorola and a lot of key applications, keep track of what everyone worked on to develop the phones, 
did consulted with Hong Kong 911 department on how to more quickly figure out where the cop cars were in Hong Kong streets, which was a pretty cool project. So I've always been in the more data and I wasn't necessarily a marketer. Okay. And I got into Infusionsoft consulting as kind of like a weird side thing. I thought it was fun. And my friend, hold on. What was your actual job? Like, what was your, like, you're like, I don't know. I went to Hong Kong. Like, it sounds like you were just like all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I predicted horse races and stuff. (laughs) And I went to Hong Kong. Yeah, so I was in Nasdaq first. Uh, I was get into Nasdaq trading before everyone knew about trading. Now trading's pretty commonplace. Back then, you tell someone you're a trader, they'd be like, "Did you trade baseball? Trade like trade cars <laughs> for horses? What are you talking about?" I mean, no, you you get on and you try to bet if stocks are moving, and they're like, "What?" Based on like if they're selling stuff, they're like, "No, no one cares about that." You just gam- basically online gambling. It's wicked uh-huh. fun, and you had to call to make the trades. Like you put okay. up a bounty of money. And as long as you didn't blow it, you could do whatever you wanted. And they had systems to track and make sure you weren't losing money. You just buy and sell stuff all day. So I'd create like these databases. It'd be like, this stock does this and that, then, you know, buy it and otherwise sell it. You know, you just you gamble. It was fun. Right. Well, and that, I mean, that's essentially how people still do it. Uh, there's just a lot more tools to help them do it now. Right. Like, yeah. you know, they can, there's a lot more ways that they can read charts and, and see, you mm-hmm. know, statistically what is this what move is this thing likely to to make or you know and how many signals am i seeing that that signal that it's going to do that that's interesting do you still trade at all or are you just i don't because i like to be all in on it and with attribution you know it always grinds my gears as someone you know throws up a website oh i was able to track some utms and shove them into a database and now i'm an attribution platform i'll be like (laughs) that's just like four percent of the journey <laughs> so that's same with the trading you got all these pros now that is so good with so many programs and supercomputers yeah. and all that you can't just i don't feel like i can just dabble in it you know uh so i i don't do i do very bland stuff on that yeah that's funny I, i've actually recently been working on an info launch um for a swing trading program um like a swing trading course and community and stuff like that and in that same group they have like a day trading one and stuff and and yeah, like I've done a little, I've dabbled in it. I think a lot of media buyers like to dabble in, uh, you know, some yeah. kind of trading, trade some crypto, crypto trade. trading crypto. <laughs> well, and, yeah, of course, like I was, a lot of people trade it and they kind of do it for fun or they're like investing long-term. And of course, the way that I went about it is I was like, um, all right, how do I like got a, you know, I got like a, you know, remote IP and got it like downloaded a program so I could use leverage. So I'm like basically just high stakes trading day one. Um, you <laughs> know, losing, just losing all my money. I'm like, I know no other way. Like, what do I want to make five bucks today? Like, no, I want to make 500. Like, how do I do that? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that's why I don't do that anymore. Cause like you said, I mean, if you really want to, you really want to make an income doing that, like you gotta be, I, it's one thing to grow your retirement account. You know, mm-hmm. it's a whole other thing to like make your, like pay your bills. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Cause you got to make a trade. You can't. You can't let it sit there. You you trade very differently with not necessarily scared money, but conservative money if it's not right. a free roll. Yep. And how I like to do it was you have three different moving averages. I'd have a day, a week, and a month. And when the trends were different, then bet options on the one that you, you know, based on whatever the right. system was telling you so that you could get some leverage out of it. So, so you did that. So you did that for a minute. Sorry. I didn't make this to mean to make this a trading podcast. Uh, no. So I did that for like four years. And then, uh, I was, then I was also working for a commodity trader and helping him with his stuff. 
And then, uh, I, I, but I really found that I just loved the database aspect of it. I just loved this whole world you can control, but it was logical. And when it works seamlessly, it was just very satisfying. So I, I took a class in how to do databases at a community school. I'd already graduated with a degree in finance, but I retook a class just to get better at it. And then I got in as a contractor at Motorola, and it was because they had a, um, this is down in South Florida. Back then, they used Excel to track what everyone worked on in the phone business. And Excel only had like 32,000 lines that had allowed rows. And there was like, or, or 64,000. This was in 1999. There was a limit on Excel rows. This is like 64,000. And there was 70,000 people that worked there. So they couldn't track all the people that would crash out. They didn't know what anyone was doing. They're making so much money. They didn't care. But they were still like, we should probably figure this out. And I was like, all right, I could help you with that. So I hacked something up that they liked. And then they're like, hey, uh, we love this. And the, the company, uh, the, the, the uh, China and Hong Kong offices, it's really slow. And I was like, well, this was back old internet, right? You, the more hops you had to get to the server, the slower it was. Wherever the data was located was how slow it was. And I was like, well, that's because they got to, you know, you could do a, a little network thing. And I said, well, it's like 11 stops to get to the data each way. They go, what are you going to do? And I was like, well, we got to put a server over there. And they're like, well, you got a passport? And I was like, well, okay. <laughs> and so that's, so that's how you ended up in Hong Kong. Good. And that's how it got going. So I was into right. data all the time. Right. So then fast forward to uh, my friend at Get Main Lobster, whose data I still can use and show. Yep. Like, Which who I've like, ironically worked with. Like we, this was a weird connection we had, but I, yeah, three, four years ago or something like that. I, I worked with him for a, a short period of time. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Crazy. That was the first time I ever used Wicked Reports. Actually, we're going to we're going to Vegas together Thursday. So okay. Well, I, I don't know if you would even remember me at this point. Um, I also don't know if he likes me very much, uh, but you know, <laughs> that's where we are. That's where I am with with them. So I, no, I they, they they actually they have an incredible business. Uh, honestly, like yeah, I, like I, I mean, what he's been able to build is 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 really incredible. It's like who would have thought? Like, hey, let me like cold ship lobster to your doorstep. You know, from Maine. Like if you just told me the idea and you were like, we're going to do it direct to consumer, we're going to run Facebook ads. I'd be like, ah, okay, good luck. Yeah. Uh, but like that, so that's the thing. It's like, it was already cooking when I stepped into it. I didn't help, help launch it or anything, but I would have been in, very skeptical. Uh, but like, yeah, I mean, he, he's really been able to build something pretty special. His lifetime value is really high. He has like a really great kind of like opt into sale funnel, but yeah, I mean, so walk through that. I don't mean to step on your toes and no, kind of, kind of say what that is, but it, it, it's, it's honestly one of the best like little e-commerce businesses I think I've ever seen um, in terms of like the ability to just buy media and, and grow profits. And he's a create, so he's creative and he's not yeah. mathematical. And so how his business got going, he builds a website. He's all excited. He's found a lobsterman. And then he's like, man, no one's buying off my website. And then we're, we're living in Chicago. He gets in with group. They have like a restaurant. Mm -hmm. They have like a restaurant, right? No, no. So he gets in with a guy in Groupon because Groupon was like becoming a, it was a okay. big deal back in the day. It was huge. You had to apply to get in, you know, you had to get invited in and everyone buy off Groupon. Oh my God. You see the Groupon deal. It was a huge thing. I mean, now it's like, who cares? And so he gets in with Groupon. He calls me up. He's like, yeah, I got a Groupon. I'm really excited. I'm like, yeah, he goes, what am I going to do? He's like, my prices right now, like I'm going to lose, I can't lose all this money. And it was like, he was a funded startup. 
I go, just double the money, double the price on your website and sell it for half off. He's like, that's crazy. I was like, no one's buying it from your freaking no-name website anyway. Who cares? Nobody knows what the price of no lobster is shipped to them. Like, yeah. So, and people it was don't have a price anchor for how much yeah. lobster should be shipped to my doorstep. Okay. Yeah. And it was like Mississippi, no, Birmingham, Alabama. And he's like, I go, where are they going to get fresh seafood? Who cares? Just double it. Try. What do you have to do? You can just edit it back the next day to the normal price. Yeah. They, they got that river. They got that river seafood in Birmingham. Yeah. They got, they got that river trout, but they don't have lobster. Yeah. Catfish or whatever. Yeah, I got catfish. So, and his seafood is actually really good. Like we're all super snobby about seafood here and his lobster rolls uh -huh. totally great too. They're, I mean, his stuff is legit. That is true. It's, it's like really good. Even though it's, it's shipped always to you, tastes, yeah. it's like, it still tastes really fresh. So that he has that going for him for sure. So he does it and they sell like, I don't know, 70 units of it. And he's crushed. He's like, oh my God, I, this is, I can't believe it. I blew my big shot. And Groupon is thrilled because he said they burnt, I think it was like a $200, $100 bucks instead. They go, we've never done a seven grand, a 10 grand offer in Birmingham ever. <laughs> We're moving you to DC next week. And he does DC, does 500 units. He freaks out. 500 right. units is a huge day for him at the time. Now they do, I mean, they do like over a million a month now. And he's like, holy shit. And they were edit, keeping track in a Google Doc. Mm -hmm. No, a word doc. It wasn't Google Docs. Word shit, doc. Okay. Of who bought and what date. And then they had to figure out, oh, wait, they want it on Sunday. We can't ship that day. And how many? It was a disaster. I had to work like literally 18 hours a day just to fulfill. It was so tough. <laughs> just to fulfill but 500 it, orders. Yeah, because they didn't, you know, there's all kinds of complexity. What day do you got to ship it for it to get there? Uh, the lobsters at the order them live, still alive. And then, then he's like, how am I going to make money off the group on? I go, well, some people don't re redeem. And then we're like, well, how are we going to upsell them? I go, just email them and say, hey, I'm packing the crates. Want me to throw in some clam chowder for 15 bucks? And he's like, who's going to pay 15 bucks for clam chowder? I go, let's find out. People who don't know. 20% yeah. took him up on that. And then that was his pro, you know, so that's, he built it just step by step. I had a couple good ideas. I mean, he did all the hustle. I just had a, you know, it's easy when you're out of the fray to think of a couple of good ideas. But he used all the grind. Yeah, that, that is true. It's like, uh, um, I think that really, like there's a, there's a value to some, to outside, you know, outside influence or outside thinking. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily advise that everybody use consultants, but I, I actually advise a lot of businesses that are in that, like 1 million. I mean, he was, he, he, he was even earlier stage, but I would say like 1 million, 5 million, even under 10 million, um, sometimes under 20 million even to hire someone who isn't like, don't necessarily hire an in-house like CMO or head of marketing, hire someone who's like fractional or, you know, maybe works on a few projects, works with you 20 hours a week, 10 hours a week, just consults, uh, whatever kind of works for you. Because, uh, what happens as soon as everybody becomes in-house is when people start, you know, they've got new ideas, they've got fresh perspectives, they got like different stuff. And then like over time, everybody's group thinks kind of becomes the same thing within the organization, mm -hmm. right? Like everyone's got the same ideas. So I, I'd actually advise that a lot. Like 
hire people who are working on different projects, you know, for a time at a certain point, you're going to have to hire, you know, someone full time to oversee things for you. But, but yeah, I mean, I think I, that's like a good point. Like, I think it's like easy for you to, like you say, it's easy for me to have a couple good ideas when I'm out of the fray. I think that's the case, right? Like when you're not in it and you work on some other things and you're solving other problems and you're just like, Oh, if I just have like a, a second, you know, or a couple minutes or an hour or whatever to think about this problem, it's almost easier to solve it than when I understand understand all the intricacies yeah. of it. And I'm like too close totally. to it, you know? And so then how we get to the media buying is so Groupon does great. Then he, you know, he runs around, does it with all the other deal sites that started copying. Then that starts to tail off. And he's like, calls me one day. He's like, Hey oh man, Facebook sucks for lobster. <laughs> <laughs> and actually it doesn't. He makes a couple hundred grand a month off it. Right. I was yeah. like, Why is that? And he's like, I just spent four grand. I got 12,000 clicks, only one sale. And I was like, that's pretty bad. Well, <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, no one's even heard. I go, what was the thing? And, you know, he's like, I don't know, some hundred bucks, save a hundred bucks by now or something. I don't know. Uh -huh. And I was like, well, you know, maybe they're just going to take time to buy or something. He's like, how am I going to know? And I was like, let me just find you some software, you know, and I was going to run around and install it for him. Uh -huh. And the only thing out there at the time was visual IQ, which was like six figure minimum Jeez, to yeah. use. So I was like, well, let's try out. I go, well, what, what, I go, what are some ideas? So we brainstormed ideas of who we were going to target on Facebook. And what we decided was people that like the Red Sox or the Pats, but didn't live in New England because we're like, they, they miss New England. The only way you like one of our teams, you had to have come from here because <laughs> otherwise you hate us. Yeah. And otherwise it's a love or hate thing. Yeah. And if you don't live here, then maybe you moved away and you're, not, you're more likely to buy lobster because you're New English. So that was all we had to go on. No fancy other thing. So the UTMs was likes socks, not in any. <laughs> that was the ad set name. And that's yeah. what we targeted. And so we, we put it in all these UTMs. I hacked up this way. I had a PHP guy grab some, you know, grab the UTMs. We'd shove it into the CRM and, and lo and behold, I was like, okay, well, run like five, run a grand a week for a month. And we did it. And we, and he had broke even. And then he stopped spending. And each week we kept seeing incremental purchases because he's very good at email, which I know we're going to get into right. later. He's really good. All he had was email. And it was just what he would think of. He'd do an email. And I did this whole digital marketer, you know, when they used to have that real popular uh, traffic and conversion. Yeah. Me and him got on stage at a whole thing about some of his emails. And they I thought they were the worst ideas ever. And they would crush sometimes, you know, is this way you could have data. And they were like, so he, they were like yeah. long plain text emails. Yeah, I remember. Long, it was, hey, we're going to play. One of them was, it's my birthday. And I was like, what yeah. the F is that going to do with lobster? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, hey, every hour, the price, I'm going to offer you 55% off. And every hour, it's going to come down a percent. I'm like, who, how are you even going to keep track of this? He goes, I don't know. And, and but he ran it. And then yep. he re-emailed the same thing out to the list 10 hours later after uh, if they didn't open it. And lo and behold, he did 20K off that email, which was his list at the time was like 80,000 people or something. So it was a good email. And that was taught me the power of email, which we'll get into later. But he kept doing two to three times a week email for 10 weeks, and he made eight to one on his money. He made 40 grand off the five when we measured it out three months. Right. And that's when his mind was blown. And so he started from the get go doing lead gen for e-com just because that's just what we stumbled into. 
and he was quickly making a couple quick very quickly making a couple hundred grand a month and that took his bit i mean he's done a lot since intri- much more intricate which you guys are yeah. well versed in but that core strategy of show opt him in and then just flip him to the deal anyway because then you got the first party data which we'll get into all that too that still works really well for his brand and it's not going to work for every brand but he's still making a couple hundred thousand a month yeah it is true so <clears throat> i'm i'm a big fan or a big proponent we've talked about it before on the show of of lead first e- what we would what casey and i have called lead first ecom right so uh first step is is to cat is to get some kind of opt-in an email opt-in an sms opt-in something like that um but i think that it doesn't not a lot of e-commerce brands do it and I have my own opinions as to why, but I am be, because I've actually heard you on other shows before uh, sort of preach this idea of like, you know, you should do uh, lead capture at the top of the funnel. Um, so I'm, I am interested in why you're such a proponent of it. Is it just because you've you saw it work so well for them? Um, and, and if so, is it like, you know, my challenge would be like, does it still work or did it just work when when Facebook was cheaper? You know, um, but I've heard you relatively recently kind of still be a proponent of it. So, yeah, I mean, that's I guess my question for you is like, why are you such a proponent of it? And then what you would like, I guess we can we know why you're a proponent of it. I guess my real question is, why don't more e-commerce brands do it that way where they generate where they like drive ad to opt in to offer they just go well, to you ad just, to offer you understand my perspectives comes from looking at billions of dollars in spend and revenue and the trends right. are kind of overwhelming so i don't really go into it with a bias of care i am biased now because it's happened so many times mm-hmm. so if you're a very skilled econ marketer that hasn't used email and sms um, to drive first first time purchases, you're leaving a ton of money on the table. That's why I'm a big fan of it. Cause over and over again, we see massive amounts of delayed conversions that happen that don't convert originally. And sometimes can take months and no one wants to run their, their strategy. Well, in eight months, I'm going to make money back. I'm not saying yeah. that, but it's a lot of residual income that drives massive increases in ROAS across all the channels you're marketing and not just Facebook, especially Facebook though. And in particular, the higher the price point or the bigger the commitment or anything with recur, just think about how you act in your own day. How many times do you see an ad for something that's 200 bucks and immediately buy? Maybe if it's, maybe it's going to cure some massive like rash you had or something like you were in desperate. I had to be actively seeking it probably. Desperately seeking, and then you might pull a tree. Well, otherwise, there's consideration in most things you purchase. And if you're strictly relying on algorithms to move it along and already succeeding there, you can kill it if you've got first-party data because you go into Google Analytics for, for most brands that are seven-figure and above, almost all. I mean, there's always exceptions. And you see email and SMS are the top two converters, direct, organic search, and then technically paid, but branded search those usually lead the charge in the last touch conversion. Right. And so that means paid pr- something, likely paid, got them there, depends on your story and what your acquisition path is. But all that stuff was helped along or acquired some other way. And if you're not doing an opt-in, that's one reason why I, is because I see the evidence, people that are converting non-brand assets being a large chunk of the revenue that, that they, they got acquired from a top or middle funnel marketing that got them 
to that point where they would get the email or SMS, something adapting to get them in the list. Yeah. And I think that the reason that so many e-commerce brands miss on this, if I were to kind of give my opinion on it is because, uh, it's almost conceding that it's going to take time to make your money back, right? Like you're probably not going to make it back today. Um, and what I mean by that is like, just think of the unit ep- economics of traffic, right? So just for easy math, let's say, <clears throat> you know, I want a $50 CPA and I'm paying a dollar per click. Uh, if what I'm doing is going, you know, paying a dollar per click and I'm, I'm sending them straight to my offer. Well, then if it can convert it 2%, then I'm going to get a $50 CPA. But if I first send them to an opt-in page and that opt-in page converts at 50%, which is a pretty good, pretty good con- conversion mm-hmm. rate. I mean, they yeah, could be better. One. Get main, get main lobster has some that are better. Um, but that's a pretty solid one. And by the time they even get to my offer and have the opportunity to purchase mm-hmm. i've already paid two bucks to get them there now i need a double that double the conversion rate to get that 50 dollars cpa on the front end um though that said i also have 50 emails who i can send back so so all in all i'm probably going to end up sending you know far more than 100 clicks to that offer because i'm going to send them back via email and stuff like that yeah. um but it's going to be over time right like i'm probably not going to back into my 50 dollars cpa that day if i go with opt-in first and i think that's why a lot of e-commerce don't do it e-commerce operators owners don't do it is they they kind of go straight to offer and then they email is a little bit of an afterthought like they kind of they might do you know an exit intent pop or pop up on there you know or something like that but it's not add to like squeeze page, which is what Gate Man Lobster does. It's a squeeze mm-hmm. page. Like you put your email in or you get out. Like that's, uh, and, and I love it. Like I loved that it was working so well for them. Um, but I am curious, even in that first run, because when I was working with them, they weren't backing out on day one. It's not like they spent, you know, if they spent $10,000 on ads today, they weren't making $10,000 attributed to those ads today. No, they were so never I am curious, what profit. is their time? What is their time to ROI? You know what I mean? Time to profit. Yeah. So now it's better because they have all this. Well, what happens is it turns into compound interest. It's like an investment, mm-hmm. a short-term investment, not like a multi-year return. But what happens is that wave of the 50 emails you got, let's say 10 of them buy over the next month. And then Every day you're adding in 50 people of which 10 will buy within the month. They slowly add up these cohorts where in a particular month, he starts with like at minimum of 200K coming in from old ads, sometimes years ago leads that are buying for free now. It's a huge ROI. So that's why when you see his top of the funnel Facebook row as it's like 5X because he has all this compound delay. But when he started back then, so one thing I like to do when I'm creating uh, predictive models is look at, use real data as a proxy, a reasonable proxy for how someone might act. And by that, I mean, we're trying to determine, hey, if someone comes in cold to to any particular brand, how long do we think it's going to take them to buy? Because people, you know, if you're operating on the assumption, hey, my ad should be day zero positive, are you normally day zero positive? And what we try to do is look at the CRM date of when they first appeared and then when they first bought in like Shopify and cross-reference it all. And his first purchase date at the time, he's gotten it better, was like 46 days <laughs> was yeah. his average. 
So he had some on day zero, some on day one, but he had people out to like three and a half months till they made their first purchase. Yeah, a long time to till break even on that ad spend. That so was brutal at first. Yeah, that's why I think brutal. a lot of e-commerce don't do it. So, so the way that I would say it is like, I mean, look, if you are profiting on day zero on your ad spend, um, or doing better than break even on day zero on the your ad spend, then I probably wouldn't put by going ad straight to offer. Then I probably wouldn't put the resistance of an opt in in the middle. Um, I then I probably would do what most e-commerce operators do, and I would put it, you know, as an exit intent pop, or I would, you know, uh, have just some time triggered pop up or something like that. And I think that was the case for a while in like the heyday of Facebook ads is a lot of e-commerce operators were profit on day zero mm -hmm. on their ad spend. Um, so that's why they don't do it now. But most of them aren't profit on day zero anymore, right? Like most of them do have time to profit on their ad spend, um, mm -hmm. in which case I think it is not a bad idea to invest in something that has compound interest. And in all the businesses that I, I currently own any stake in, um, it's that kind of thing. Like we typically aren't making a profit on day zero, but we have lots of data modeled out to, to know that, you know, there is, you know, comp over time, there's, there's huge levels of ROAS and ROI. And ultimately that just creates a lot of cash flow. We can cash flow our own businesses um, and yep. we can take profit draws as owners and, and all of that stuff. And I think it just puts us in a better healthy cash situation rather than every single day having to show up and make a profit on the ad spend on the front end. Um, so that that's where I'm at with the businesses that I want to get involved in now. It's harder to start them. It's harder to start them from a bootstraps perspective. I get it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's win now versus win, win now and make money now, but cause a, make your business kind of a struggle mm -hmm. for yourself later, right? Like you're just always going to be in that struggle yeah. or struggle a little bit now, you know, and, and start investing in sort of the business version of compound interest. Uh, that's kind of how I see it. I, I completely agree. Plus, I mean, taking the first party capture, you could retarget anyone that doesn't convert and in, in do that approach. But first party data allows you to personalize the ads better. It gives yeah. you better targeting because you get way higher match rates. Then your lookalikes are better because you get better quality data to pump in. So just from a targeting and a personalization perspective, the first party data is a stronger thing to, to get. But then just people buy off tech, SMS and email, people buy off that. And they buy off it. Yeah. They always have. And, and I mean, there's no sign that that's abating. So a channel that's just proven to work, there's no reason to wait until they've already bought once to start doing it. Particularly yeah. if you're e-commerce subscription. Trying to get people to buy without capturing first-party data first is a lot tougher. Because you can actually spend on Facebook if your top-of-the-funnel attribution shows negative ROAS, but trending towards positive, you can start spending because that recur is going to make it positive. Uh, some of our, I mean, we got a case say with Umzu, they do supplements, you know, they get, you know, tens of thousands of subscribers, but they do that. They, they spend on audience and those audiences aren't going to look profitable to your competition because they're going to have the same crappy stats on their day zero conversion. So people are going to be bidding less, but you'll be scooping them all up because you know, no, these are good. You know, it could be their, you know, it depends on your avatar. Yeah, and so I, these people that are busy with income, they don't have a lot of time to be jerking around on Facebook, right? Yeah, maybe they're not in there that much. So that, if you get that's, attention, you got to capture them while you got yeah, them. You can't just hope yeah. they're going to be hanging on there all day. I mean, I'm not on there all day. 
I, I and I uh, like the the one e-commerce business that I own, you know, port, part of a stake in. Um, that's what it is too. It's it's recurring revenue, and we we just have like a really great offer on the front end. We do lead capture on the front end, um, and we have a really strong offer, and then you know, really strong follow up with all of our email and SMS, and and then it's recurring. We don't make money on day zero, uh, but we kind of plan for that, right? Because it's like there's not a lot of people making money on day zero anyway. Uh, yeah. anymore. So, so uh, I would rather plan the business around the idea that like, let's not assume that we're going to have some kind of like all-star breakthrough on ads. And let's assume that we're going to just be good at it, right? Like if we have an all-star breakthrough, then it still works. You know, we're not going to count that out, but let's, let's create a business plan around just being solid at it and like having a business that can withstand solid performance on ads it doesn't have to be incredible. Um, that's kind of like, I guess my philosophy on it. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about, uh, data modeling and predictive kind of predictive data modeling, because I think that one of the issues that people have with attribution is sort of the, the idea that you hear in finance, right? Like, uh, what is it past, prior results are not indicators of future success. I can't, there's some legal Best term. performance is no yeah. guarantee of future success. It's only right. Like yeah. There's some legal terms that they always have to use in finance, right? In every, finance, so. every hedge fund you look at or whatever. <laughs> uh, and I think that people feel that way about attribution. Um, I do kind of think like, ah, give me a break. You know, like uh, uh, if, if this ad has clearly been outperforming this ad by a lot, you know, I think that we can, do some predictive, there's some predictability that like, that's probably just a better ad. People respond to it better. Um, but I do, I do get that <clears throat> what a lot of attribution modeling does or getting to like, sorry, attribution modeling doesn't do this. The way people use it is what it is. So pe people are the problem, not the machines really. Um, but the, the way that people use it, uh, they don't take into account like confidence intervals or how much data there is, you know, so they might look at something and they say, you know, whatever it is, this ad's mm -hmm. better than this ad, this channel's better than this channel, this offer's better than this offer. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to pour more money into it today because I have this predictive model that, you know, I, I have a, a time to break even of two weeks. So in two weeks, it'll, it'll break even, but it's like, well, I mean, you have, you have 1000, you know, customers acquired through that offer, you know, is it going to look the same at 10,000 or a hundred thousand? Like, do you really have enough data to say that, you know, or even like a hundred, a lot of times media buyers are making decisions on like 10 purchases, right. Uh, mm -hmm. or 10 conversions. So I do, I do want to address, like, do you think that people can get, can like put too much faith into the tools that are giving them data, like, you know, the attribution modeling tools? And, and is there a way to solve for that as a tool, you know? Well, I think you can in your example, because yeah, if you were just looking at last touch and seeing 10 customers and then suddenly thinking you'd found the holy grail to money, you'd probably end up disappointed sooner or later. Yeah. Because one thing that, that those it generally doesn't take into account is like if you're targeting someone on Facebook, how big is that pool and how good is that targeting as it goes forward? Right. That's what's kind of nice about Google. You can do a target row as, but then you're upset because it didn't spend as much. And you're like, well, because they have to <laughs> cherry pick the targeting, but most likely to convert and to hold that 300% you're trying to get, 
you know what? Only one out of every hundred in there is going to match. And then they got to still see your ad and click. You still got to win the auction, still got to get clicked on, still got to convert all that stuff. So that's why you never end up spending what you want on the target row as everyone just wishes, you know, set to 300%, you know, make riches. So yeah, set to so 300% and spend as much money as you can possibly. And make that amount of money, $10,000 a day, please. Yeah. Oh yeah. I used to get the demo. Hey, what are you willing to spend? Oh, I'm, I'll spend unlimited as long as it's converting. And as long I'll be as like, it's profitable. I these agencies, I just want to like slit the people's throats. Yeah. I, yeah, I got a, I got all the budget in the world to spend. I'd be irritated. Making it back the same day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I obviously uh, yes. everyone brand still says that they can't help themselves. They just say it. It's just, you can't help it. Uh, but also I think though, I mean, wh where they make a mistake is looking at full funnel. You need the full funnel insights because if you got those 10 sales, but you can, it's a, it's a reverse engineered funnel that has some thought behind it. It could potentially scale some. And if you don't have the full funnel, and you were just saying, oh, wow, my, my tracking shows 10 sales. And you don't know that, oh, it came from that great webinar or some influencer one time pushed them in there and you don't have that flow going anymore. So that that ad's going to dry up or that particular marketing channel is going to dry up because the top funnel that was feeding it and the middle funnel that's moving along isn't getting fed with the, with the right, uh, you know, not the fuel going into the top. Mm -hmm. What do you say to the idea, especially for entrepreneurs, that... Uh, I mean, I think this is something I've said before. What do you say that to the idea of like, do you think that you can get, you can kind of data yourself to death and you can sort of get bogged down in the, in the trees and, and miss the forest? Like, I, I guess that's uh, the question is, do you think that sometimes people get too down the rabbit hole of, of looking at every piece of data that they can and trying to understand every piece, piece of data they can? And they kind of get analysis paralysis and just don't move forward in their business. And this is just a broader business question as a whole. Yeah, because I think you need to ready, ready, fire, aim as an entrepreneur yeah. way more than you want. And you got to get used to it. You got to be comfortable with proceeding with 80% certainty and then yeah. letting the metric, then letting the right metrics help guide your course and course correct. You know, one thing that I can't stand for analysis paralysis is blended CAC. I can't stand blended CAC and everyone likes it. Everyone uses it because it's a simple way to look at it because yeah. you can manipulate it so easily. Just spend more on branded search and you're going to get a better blended CAC as long or, as you, until you blow through all, everyone that was in your funnel. Or just and cut the budget we, today. And for the next week, your blended CAC is going to be blended better. CAC comes down. I can't stand people who use blended. I just need my blended CAC number to be, you know, Mark still does that. Give me no. a lobster. He's the poster boy for the late version. You want to hear me? You want to hear, you want to hear my conspiracy theory on this? Uh, I do. In our in our world, many of the oh, I could get in trouble for with some people for this. Uh, in our world, many of the biggest thought leaders are come from an agency background, and they have an agency. And blended crack is an blended CAC is an incredible place to live if you're a media buying agency because it can be manipulated. Right? Client yeah. is unhappy. Okay, let's bring their CAC down by just dropping the spend. Um, we didn't actually start performing any better. We just dropped the spend down and our, our cat got better. Or we moved some budget from, you know, discovery network yeah. to branded search or to search or whatever. You move right? it to the bottom of the funnel and mm -hmm. lower the spend at the top as well. And you say, hey, I cut costs and I increase conversions. Oh yeah. my God, it's great. And, and so, and so many time. people, so many people within our, uh, within thought leadership, within e-commerce and digital marketing as a whole are actually from an agency background 
So I'm not saying that it's they're full of it and like, you know, they know like but but they've they've sort of they're drinking the, their own Kool-Aid. Right. And that's a um, tricky spot. you got a big retainer client paying you 20K yep. a month and spending 300K and they just don't get it. And you feel like they're going to sack you. You got to do what you got to exactly do. Right. They don't get it, so I understand. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're kind of trying to look out for their best interest for them sometimes. So, yeah, I get it. It is a it, it, you know. I don't mean to throw agency people under the bus or anything, but it is sometimes, uh, sometimes I think that business owners, founders, uh, want to, they want to answer the question of tell me exactly where every sale came from today. So we do that. We do order level attribution and transparent click journeys because people demand it because they buy us because we don't match speaking for any marketing attribution platform. Really? The the point is we're going to be different and make you more efficient with your money. We're going to save you ways. Let me ask you this. What's the problem with that question though? You know, that pro- the problem with that question of just tell me the channel that every single sale came from today. I mean, to me, I don't usually, I don't think that they're thinking that the, any sales came from multiple channels. Oh, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, that's a, that's something I'm too deep in the problem. Yeah. I would have missed that. Of course. I mean, my yeah. answer is of course they come from multiple channels, but yeah, they don't even think that. No, that's, I, no, that's uh, what I think when they're asking that question, they're trying to just sell, say, well, tell me all the sales that came from Facebook, all the revenue that came from Facebook. Say, like, okay, well, he, on what model? You know what I mean? Yeah. And they're like, just tell me all the revenue that came from In their brain, it's like, we should be able to bucket them all into one place. And so there's some attribution tools that'll actually show you a view like that. Um, but it's like, man, they're answering the demand, but not the actual need. And, and so the, it is a tough thing, right? When, when founders, business owners want certain data and want uh, certain results and, and you as a marketer or you as an attribution expert, know that's not what you actually need. Need. Exactly. Uh, right. Man, I, could, I couldn't have said So we've, got, we've actually gotten a lot more traction in the past seven, eight months with media buyers and agencies because we've given them talk tracks yeah. And have middle funnel tracking. So then, because I've always been bothered by last click, we, we put in some different little fancy features to ignore these clicks or don't count organic. And they were like, let's just tell the true story, but not, not screw over paid because all these email and SMSs are happening because of the paid most likely. Yeah. So how Nobody do woke do up this morning and said, hey, I should sign up for your, that company's email list that I've never heard of. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Something drove the awareness. It was paid or it was influencer or it was word of mouth. It had to be one of the three, basically. It, it had to be. Uh, right. No one just woke up with nonamebrand.com, which is what yours is. <laughs> and I got there. They had to hear about it. It's one of those three spots. And granted, organic does work decent, but paid, paid it certainly drives a ton of brand success. But it, not at the bottom end of the journey a lot of the time. Because once you're comfortable with the brand, then you're just going to go there. Like if I see an ad for something and I'm more like, well, it's something I do. I do electrolytes, drink elements, the one I'm currently using. Mm-hmm. So I get electrolytes. I see the ad. It might remind me that I want to go buy some more. I'm not I, I, I'm not going to probably click it. I'm going to think about it. And then like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go get electrolytes. And I'll just go to the brand because I'm already comfortable with them now from the ads that got me on the list. And then the ad made have ease me along again. But it's a direct sale for me now with that brand. And so then the ads still need, should get credit. Those top of the funnel ads that earn that loyalty that now my LTV is like seven, 800 bucks with LMT already. So yeah. now it's like 80 bucks a month or whatever. I don't know. It's expensive, but I love them. 
Well, that top of the funnel should keep getting our models. We keep giving it credit every time so that the brand owner that's thinking bottom line, blended CAC can say, hey, wait a minute. What's all this ROAS over here? This is yeah. way to get their attention. Yeah. <clears throat> Casey, you got something? I do have something for us, John. We have a question here and a comment uh, for us to <laughs> ask the sports metaphors question. Who's that and from? It wouldn't yeah, it wouldn't be an episode of Modern Commerce with a, uh, a sports fan on as a guest if we didn't ask this one. Uh, if you've listened to a few episodes, this is kind of a, a staple whenever we know we have a sports fan. So, Scott, my question to you, and this is kind of uh, feel free to take creative liberty here, creative licensing here. Um, basically, I know you're a sports fan. I'm curious if you've taken anything, uh, whether it was from – your time ever being an athlete or being a fan of sports, uh, some lesson you've learned from sports that you take uh, to the business world or some kind of expression maybe that gets used in sports and kind of adapting that to the business realm. Um, trying to buy you some time, usually try I, to make this, I got one. this question a long I, I already process. got one. I did a whole presentation okay. drafting yeah, yeah, Scott, Scott's going on. Yeah, go ahead. About Brady and Belichick and how it relates to stats and benchmarks. Because you want to try to do the whole point of the data, you want to improve your business. And you're already trying to say, hey, am I doing better or worse than I usually do? And when you're doing better at something, when you're like ROIs rising, spend more there. And when the ROI is crappy, stop doing that. But I made a point about stats and averages because imagine you you read a stat and you say, uh, wow, that rushing play went for negative one yards. Uh, that must have been a crappy play. And I'm like, no, it's Tom Brady taking a knee. They just won the Super Bowl. That was the greatest <laughs> play on earth. <laughs> That's right. the play you're trying to get to. Victory information. <laughs> so context really matters. That's why at, when I talk about attribution, what are you trying to accomplish? I'm trying to attract cold traffic. We need a cold traffic model that takes top of the funnel into account, delayed conversions, and time to buy. Oh, I'm trying to get them to buy right away. Okay, well, then you use the bottom of the funnel. Like everything, context. Stats need context. It's an art and a science combined. And like that, that's the one I use. Yeah, that's a, that's a, good, a good one because, you know, if you are trying to grab that top of the funnel, it's hard to focus on scoring too. That's like saying like, hey, it's first and first and maybe fit, maybe we're backed up even. But first and 10, let's say midfield, you aren't going for the end zone. You aren't designing totally plays. Place. The end zone. Yeah. No, I, I agree. And I, I, uh, I like that one. I, I always say like, <clears throat> people have kind of like fights on Twitter about like, uh, KPIs that matter and KPIs that are useless and KPIs that your agencies just do blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I, I don't think there's a single KPI out there other than, I mean, and it, 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 this honestly even depends on what kind of business you are. So I'll, I'll say, I don't think there's a single KPI out there, period, hard stop that doesn't need context. Um, and, and typically it needs context of another KPI. Um, so, you know, I was going to say pro profit, bottom line profit, that one doesn't need context. And I'm like, well, yeah, it does. It depends on what your goals are. If you're venture backed and your goal is growth, 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 and you've got like really great broad bottom line profit, well, that's kind of actually a problem. Like you're probably not growing as aggressively as you, as you should be, you know, mm -hmm. was your bootstrap, maybe it's good. Or if you're bootstrap, you're still maybe not growing as aggressively as, as you could be because you're kind of saving too much for profit. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it all depends, right? Like they all need context and they all need, uh, the, the context of another KPI usually. Right. Um, so yeah. 
new customers acquired, you know, needs the context of, of CAC. Uh, and that needs the context of, uh, you know, something like MER or blended ROAS or, or total, you know, cash in cash out or whatever. Right. It's like to really see how healthy the business is. You can't just tell me, Hey, we acquired 10,000 new customers this month. I'm like, well, you could have lost a whole bunch of money doing that. Exactly. You know, why should I be impressed? Right. The um, customer acquired thing. Yeah. It totally depends. What's your back end Like, are you right. recurring? It's always uh, like with attribution too, it's like you got to match the model with the intent of that campaign. You can't go in and measure, just say, oh, I'm going to do multi-touch and whatever the number is, that's what it is. No, you have to look at where in the funnel you were targeting the people and use the appropriate modeling approach yeah. on what you were trying to do. And otherwise you're you're shooting yourself in the foot or you're, you're acting on less than accurate data and sometimes. Yeah, I think a lot of it is setting your own benchmarks too. You know, um, I, I, you kind of said like you have an issue with last touch. I don't have any issue with last touch in the hands of somebody who kind of knows what they're doing. Right. I think last touch is dangerous and paints a bad picture uh, with people who don't know how to contextualize it. Right. So somebody knows how to contextualize last touch. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. A place where I use last touch a lot is when we're uh, doing new creative tests. Right. So we're running new creative tests, top of funnel. Um, and I want to know, hey, what is the last touch? cost per conversion um, on this new creative and what is our typical last touch co cost per conversion on a creative? Not because I'm saying, you know, I know our total, you know, I know our total CAC target is, is $30 and this one's at 75. So it sucks. Uh, no, it's because it's like, well, I already actually have a benchmark in my head for what a typical CAC is for a new creative test at top of funnel. Right. So, and, and last touch gives me a really clean look at like, what is this doing kind of like day one, right. Um, or, or first touch, right. Or just something, right. Like it does, it doesn't matter what the model is, but I have my own benchmarks for the model for what I'm doing. Right. And that's just an example of it. Um, and I think that that's actually important, right? Like the, like wicked reports or any attribution tool or any tool period, no tool is going to build you a shelf, right. A hammer won't build you a shelf. A drill won't build you a shelf. Like only the person who uses the tool can build the shelf, right? So you, it's still up to you as the business owner, the marketer, whatever, to actually know how to use these tools properly. Yep, completely agree. I mean, because like if you're, if you're going to have half of your budget top of the funnel, then you need to measure top of the funnel in the correct way. And then right. if you're going to do whatever you call a middle funnel, 20% and then the bottom 30, you get to measure them all separately in an agreed upon manner. And then you need to look at your historical performance for some fair expectation of how they're going to do. And of course you always want to exceed that each time, but you need a baseline of performance to know, Hey, I'm, I'm I shouldn't kill my ROAS is negative. You know, my ROAS is 0 0.8. Should I kill this top of the funnel? No, because in the past, the best you've done is 0.5 and we see from your cohorts, your lifetime value, you double your money in 180 days. It's crushing. Spending with both hands. Yeah. <laughs> Not How much money you have, spend it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, oh, well, I noticed over here my ROAS is 3.3. Yeah, that's your branded search. <laughs> Get out of here. Or that ad's six months old. You know, yes. so that was the thing. Get named Lobster. When I was working with him, he'd fall into that trap a lot. He'd be like, yes. oh, my old ads are doing so much better. And I'm like, well, that's because all the, the emails time. already collected are driving sales, you know, yes. uh, like the ads that we made sucked. It's like, well, I mean, compared to the ones that have been running for six months and have generated 20,000 emails, you know? Yeah. 20,000 um, emails, he's got, you know, his email per lead starts at 20 bucks minimum, goes up yeah. from there to like 40 ish. 
Yes, right, you made right. like 80K off those emails. <laughs> yeah, so so if you look at the snapshot that way, then yeah, those ones kind of made more than these ones did that are brand new, but but it's just the wrong way to look, right? So I think that's a lot of it is you gotta you have to know how to use the tools. Uh, one kind of for fun question I wanted to throw your way because I know your background is, uh, the, the whole reason you got into this is because that you've always loved data. Actually, I have two questions. So, so one question that's not for fun, and this is more of like, I think a regular thing. I don't have thing. any non-fun questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> well, one's like just a, a, a thought work, like, hey, here's a theoretical. But, but this one's actually, I, I do want to hear your thoughts and advice on this because I think this happens a lot to uh, founders specifically. Um, and maybe not just founders, but, but people who grow in their career. Um, you went from being a person who liked data, built, you liked building the data models. You probably built the early versions of the Wicked oh, yeah. Report tool uh, to now, you know, when was the last time you did any building on the tool, right? Like, it's just not your role anymore. Your role is this, is very, this very different thing to sort of like lead other teams. And, and um, I think sometimes people get into that. And I've experienced this with, with another uh, dear friend guest that's been on the show, Nick Shackelford, when I took over as the head of, of paid at his agency, he had like this weird kind of like self-worth thing going on because he's always tied his self-worth to being the ads guy and the guy who knows about running ads and doing them profitably and stuff like that. Um, and then like, he kind of wasn't in it, he wasn't in it anymore. So his knowledge started to, to degrade a little bit <clears throat> and stuff. And we had to find ways for him to keep up. Um, I am interested in that kind of concept for you as, as your role has changed, have you had to kind of like deal with that? Like, uh, you know, I don't have to be this technical whiz in order to be valuable uh, sort of conundrum that a lot of people have to deal with or how, how has your mindset around it changed? Yeah, there's certainly days I wish I could just be in my database playing again, but I don't even have right. it installed in this computer, two computers in a row. I haven't had it installed. It pains me because yeah. I sometimes get in an argument with the devs and I go in and like show them a query. <laughs> That's almost <laughs> like 15 of us. It was much more fun. Right. Um, that's it, it. You know, that's tough because you some days you miss it because it's really yeah. it was enjoyable. Uh, you know, when I first created the the code, I've been out on a pretty big bender drinking. And then all night I was like half asleep daydreaming about how to combine this Infusionsoft table with this Google table. And I got up at like 5 a.m. I think I went to bed like two and wrote holy grail.sql was the name of the file. I told my wife, I said, I did it. I emerged and it was the thing that I first went to market with. The digital market was running off holy grail.sql when we yeah. tracked this stuff. So I, lo I love that epiphanies and all that. So it, it's a definite takes some time. Like I'm horsing around with AI, but only enough because we're building AI in only enough to like know enough when people tell me stuff that they're not BSing me. Right. But not, I have to stop short of here's the solution, here's right. how to do it. That's tough. Like I was trying to, you know, we wanted to speed up some particular report and I was going to, and I was like, oh my God, my ways are like 10 years old. They're not going to work. And, and for you so to hop in. Sad. I was sad. I, yeah. I didn't love it actually. It just well, and for it. you to hop in and even stay up on that stuff enough to be able to say, all right, everybody get out of the way. Scott's coming through. I'm going to fix the problem. 
it's not leverage time for a founder. You know, it's not no. the best use of your time and uh, and it's going to distract you from things that are going to drive the business forward a lot more. I think it's a big struggle for founders who were Huge. who were technical, you know, who, who were who had technical chops and were good at something and had a skill. And that's how they grew initially. And then now they have to step into this role of like, what is it? What does it even mean? to be a founder and not be involved with building the product or marketing the product or fulfilling the product. Like I have to hire people to do all the things that I know how to do and like to do and, and what do, what am I supposed to do? Um, it, it's a, it's a real struggle. I definitely wanted to, to chat with you about it because I think if anyone's going through that, it's, it's normal. It's definitely. The normal. communication is tricky too, because you'll describe how a problem solved because how you got here is you can see solutions to this particular yep. problem space easy. So you lay it out to people they may not fully bake it in what it means and what to do yep. and how that. And then I was used to make the assumption, Hey, I laid it out. I said it, we're good. Yeah. And that isn't the case. And now that I have more, much more meticulous in the verification, that's what, you know, kind of boosted our retention right up too. Cause I feel like, Hey, we're just gonna do this, this, and this, everyone's going to love it. And then it wasn't always being done right. And I right. thought, Oh my God, these are smart people that I told what to do. What, what the hell happened? And, yeah, there's a learning curve on that. They didn't see sure. that vision like you saw it. And so you felt like you described it this much and that they should have got it from that. But you yep. already saw it in your head away. Like they don't see everything that's in your brain. Um, that exactly. happens with me and Casey. Like Casey and I are pretty on the same page. But but yeah, like that happens a lot. We We've come up with ways to say that kind of stuff to each other. Like I think that you're seeing something. I think you're seeing a vision here that I'm not quite seeing. Um, and yeah, it's tricky. It's tricky to like try and move something forward and get something done when you're not the one who's supposed to like put your hands on it and get it done. And in fact, when you do put your hands on it and get it done, it's like kind of damaging, you know? Well, um, this big major release that we, you know, we're going to be promoting on your show was I was only involved with it from the idea was fun mm -hmm. and some of the cons tiebreaker concepts, the product manager bringing me like, only you understand what I'm struggling with here. What do you think about this, this, and this? But otherwise, I was ninety-five percent out of it, and it and it's killer. And I was like, that gave me actually great satisfaction. I wasn't sad; I was very satisfied. I was like, this is great. I don't have to worry about this area of the business now. <laughs> like, this is an awesome upgrade on stuff we used to do. And I'm not. I was just kind of helping with the visioning and and a few tricky things. But otherwise, right. I was out of it. It's great. That, yeah. So that that is. So we just got a question from, from Carrie Mitchell. How do you get people to see your vision? Which, you know, when we get questions in the live chat, I, I do like to do my best to answer them. Um, if you find out the answer, Carrie, let me know. Uh, I would love to know the answer to that. Uh, I, I think that's actually a challenge like forever. But I think what's, what you just said, Scott, that's like a big step sometimes when when may, like when somebody who is smarter and, and more knowledgeable and more up to speed in a certain area than you are almost shares the vision with you and then executes it. And, and Casey and I were talking about this yesterday. Like I can't wait till that happens and we look at it and say, that's better than I would have done it. Yeah. I wouldn't have done it that good. It took a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it takes the right people. You, you got to be crystal clear on it, but you getting to verification that they're clear is I don't have a foolproof method, right? I don't know. Just yep. saying that as an info course. <laughs> so so I, I would say this, if it keeps coming back, not what you envisioned, right? Like if things are coming back and it's not what you envisioned, number one, I don't put the onus on them. 
right? I, I figured the onus, first things first is I figure the onus is probably on me, not on them, right? Um, and that I might get to a point where I say, okay, that person's just not competent, but that's not my immediate response. And I think that is a lot of people's immediate response. Uh, so that's like thing number one. And thing number two is like, sometimes that is where I might say, okay, how could I how could I build a model here, right? Like how could I build some kind of, you know, whether it me, whether it's me going and doing this thing once and, and saying, all right, here's what I'm kind of thinking. And now that I've done this, I've clarified my thoughts a little bit more and I can kind of show you, uh, or can I just build some sort of model of it, right? So if it's like, hey, I want the UX to be like this, I don't need to go in and design the UX. Can I just go into Figma really quick or Canva really quick and lay something out and being like, this is kind of what I'm thinking or seeing. So yeah, I think sometimes it's iterative going back and forth on what, what the vision is. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really incredible when you can hand it off to somebody and, and they come back with something that you're like, that's better than I, that's better than what I had in my head. That though takes one hiring the right people. And two, I think time, I think once you've been like, that doesn't happen until a smart person that was the right hire has been working with you for maybe two or three years. Uh, and you've got really good chemistry and they kind of get what you're going for. Or, or when you give them a vision, they sort of catch it and they're like, I'm going to run with that, you know? Yeah, totally agree. Nope. I was just going to say, I think that's that's one component that can get overlooked is the time. Actually, like finding the right person, sure, that's very important. But actually putting some time on the schedule to talk about long-term vision, not a lot yeah. comes from those conversations initially, but then kind of all at once when these big like transitions happen, it's so much easier because you've already shared, you know, 30 yeah. minutes worth of, of thoughts weekly on if we ever take this big step, it, hopefully it looks kind of like this. And the other person goes, oh, that's a couple degrees different than how I saw it, but now, now I'm meeting you in the middle there and you kind of do that mm -hmm. over and over again, week after week, big transition, some big thing happens. You're already on the same page with that other person. And hopefully it's a seamless, like just shoots you straight for the stars. <laughs> That's a great, like how much time Casey have we, have we quote unquote wasted? wasted you know what I mean? Yeah. W w wasted talking about stuff that wasn't relevant to what we were supposed to be working on right then. But then, yeah some big point happens where we have to do we have to make some really big move really quickly and it doesn't take us long at all because we've already had all of the lead up conversation um and I'll, we I'll throw out exactly how we envisioned it yeah i'll throw out this another sports example really quick but think of brady and gronk right scott that's how much time did they waste just kind of you know shooting the shit right just talking but all of that just even the regular conversation it all adds to that mind meld that they're so notorious for and i think right. anybody in business or in any realm of life is going to want that with any person they have to work with that kind of oh we can mind meld that's phenomenal let's do that yeah. as much as possible yes i mean i've seen that the, the the time really counts yeah but you don't want to have that time and then find out they're the wrong fit either so it's always right around close sure. to a year if you're something like you know what it's just person's just not feeling this it. person's not it. They're not it's it. Tough. It's tough to be the you know the grim reaper on that, but yeah. you're really, you know, if it's not a, a, if if they're a seven out of ten, it's not doing anyone the right service in the long term. It might be stressful for you or the other the person, but if if someone's a seven out of ten in their role and you've done everything you, you feel like you can, then it's just you're doing everyone a disservice keeping them in that spot. Yeah. As painful as those ones are. I got one more for you, Scott. So, uh, because you're, you're, because you got into this whole thing, because you are into data and you got into data because you were just kind of obsessed with trying to predict, predict outcomes. Um, 
hypothetically, if you had to build a data model or some kind of predictive model, predictive kind of thing uh, of what the effects would be on any single business, right? So let's say it was just a single business, could be Wicked Reports, could be any business, not all businesses, not on an industry, but any single business, what the effects of an economic downturn will be on that business, what inputs would you look at and, and how would you, how would your brain start to tackle the problem of modeling that? Yeah. I look at first, um, burn rate would be most important burn rate versus cash in the bank, just to determine the immediacy of the problem. Yeah. Then I need a, a kind of a scoring of, uh, importance per I'd have all in cost descending, then look at the top 20% of the costs and how, valuable and important they are to the business because that's right away you see things that you're paying for you're like wait, wait a minute what am i sponsoring this for what am i paying yeah. this why for? am i sponsoring this modern commerce podcast <laughs> no this was see, this is one where we will like want for for growth <laughs> it's a good spend but yes. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no uh so that those would but then also projecting out the the tr what the recent trend so with the downturn how much the downturn has affected our business to project is that a true indicator of how our business is affected? So if we've only lost, if we've lost, if we've been flat and the economy's down X percent and it's, and it's slated to flatten out, then that is actually probably a positive that we've reached our quote unquote rock bottom. So I'd want to model a, almost like a moving line average of the economy and our results. Right. Um, then I look at a sales and marketing efficiency ratio to see how we're doing there. Cause there's probably some, some waste or some things that should be exploited because we almost always pop into account and find people are blowing money unexpectedly yeah. and they're not scaling or optimizing within campaigns that are winners. Like mm -hmm. when I read market was when I was into trading, a lot of people, their winners are you got to have courage to be a pig when you're actually winning. That was George Soros. You know, yeah. he's in a, a controversial figure for all his political reasons, but man, that guy could make money because when he found a winning thing, he would just pile on and we see people that are making like a thousand percent on this rando keyword and they're not, they should have a hundred percent search impression share on that. They're printing money and they don't look and do it. Microsoft ads, people kill it over there. They don't spend enough where they're killing it. Um, so I would look at just the, 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 the open, I, I would start to model the open opportunities I'm not taking advantage of and probably a lot of things we're wasting time on and cut. Yeah. So those would be some of the inputs. Time, find, trying to find time wastes, things that we're doing because we thought it was a good idea, and then now we're meeting on this bullshit thing. Right? Why are we even meeting? Resource waste topic. Yeah, resource waste, waste in general. It sounds like right, money waste. Waste in general for us because that would give a little boost, in wind in sales, mm -hmm. and then things, little known things, whatever is working because something's working. You got a viable business. Why are we not doubling, tripling, and down on that? Because for right. us, podcasts, webinars, co-marketing, those things we all kill at. And we kind of slack, slacked on doing it for various reasons that frustrate me. <laughs> but now we're not doing it anymore. So, Jesus, yeah. why are we doing more of these? And so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here you are. Um, real quick, so uh, the, new, the new release, the new feature release that Wicked Reports is coming out with is called Funnel Vision. Um, we will have a demo. We will have a demo probably by the next episode. I'm going to be ambitious and I'm going to say we're going to have the demo done by the next episode. Uh, 
And yeah, uh, but but really quick, I know it's going to be a lot easier for people to understand once they can see the demo. But really quickly, Scott, maybe just describe the what Funnel Vision is and, and why it's important to founders, you know, marketing leaders and, you know, media buyers alike. Well, this whole conversation is kind of why it's important. The whole the attribution has been a murky area and we wanted to, you know, we've been doing this for nine years. So we do deeply know what we're doing and we haven't always made the right product decisions, but sometimes we've crushed it. We were innovators ahead of our time based on first party data for like nine years now. And we finally encompassed everything we wanted and we wanted one view that covered all the different ways you might want to look at attribution. Oh, I'm only looking at last touch. Oh, I, I'm driving ads that are closing on email. Oh, I'm spending 60% on top of the funnel. All those different ways. We didn't want you to have to keep jockeying through attribution models and settings. And we want it to be one view that just kind of solved attribution, made it as easy as possible to visualize the effects that all the channels have, where they are in the model, how they interplay for a lot of complexity boiled down to one relatively easy view that kind of summarizes everything so you can strategically take action or not turn off ad spend that's actually killing it for you. It's just delayed conversion time. Mm -hmm. So to solve all that, we came up with something called Funnel Vision that's packed a ton of expertise into to one report is our, is our goal. Beautiful. Scott, uh, I, I think um, we have a tradition on this show where we do, the, we, where we do a parting shot, uh, but I actually think that what you just said about funnel vision, it was like, that was the parting shot. Like this whole conversation is why this is important. Like you need to not waste spend, you need to know where waste is. Uh, so that's Scott's parting shot. So I'm going to call a little bit of an audible here. Scott was my target receiver for the parting shot, but Casey, you are now that he's covered. You're now my target receiver for the parting shot. I'm sending the ball your way. Give us a parting shot for this episode. All right. I think that my parting shot for this episode would be that you need to have need to make informed decisions. Uh, you need to have informed data impacting the decisions you're going to make. And if you don't have confidence in the data you're getting, it's really tough to do that. So the closer you can get to your data and the more you can understand it, and the more you can kind of parse out what is the most important you know, subsets of those data. Uh, that's going to make life easier on you. And you can get lost <laughs> initially uh, as soon as you start exploring data uh, if it's not something that you're used to. But if you're somebody like Scott, who is like a data expert, uh, who is even before like working on data professionally, it seems like you had a knack for data and just had a thirst for data, um, you can you can work around data a little bit better. So I, if you don't have somebody like that, I would look for somebody like that if you're not that person. Uh, because I think if nothing else, what we did was expose some traps you can fall into, some some thinking habits you can pick up that might send you down the wrong path. Uh, pretty much had something like that, an example of that on almost every topic we talked about today. So uh, let others make mistakes for you and learn from their mistakes uh, and get somebody who's already operated around some of the decisions you need to make around data for your business. Uh, that's How did I do? That was my best shot. It was shot. pretty good. I mean, look, it's like, yeah, you, you know, I'll TR, TLDR your TLDR. At the end of the day, business is simple. You want to try and make more money than you spend. Um, sometimes doing that is hard. Uh, but if you're able to do it, if you're making more money than you're spending today, it's because of something you did in the past that worked, right? So what you really want to know is what is it that you did in the past that worked? What is it that helps you make more money than you spend? And let's do more of that. Um, and <clears throat> so the more you simplify it and just 
ask yourself that question. How do I make more money than spend that I spend? You know, how have I done it in the past and what do I need to look at to continue to do it? Uh, the simpler business would be. All right. Modern Commerce Podcast, that is going to do it for us today. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. John, thank you for leading this interview. Guys, I'm just back here pushing some buttons. I don't have nearly as big a job as these two guys carrying the weight of the conversation. But if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you hit like on this video so that we know that you enjoyed it and so that YouTube knows you enjoyed it. Also, remember to subscribe to our channel. Uh, hit the bell icon so you get notifications for every live show we do. When we go live, you can jump into the chat with us ask some questions just like somebody else did today. Uh, you'll get your questions usually answered live on air with us and Modern Commerce. Until next time, always uh, remember, we'll be here again shortly. <laughs> See you next time.